Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So guys, I have some amazing news. On International Men's Day, November 19th, come and join me and some esteemed guests such as Johnny Benjamin, Simon Thomas, Hope Virgo, Tom Chapman and more as we partner with Sure Mind Charity Beyond and the Lions Barber Collective for an evening with some of the celebrated authors from Trigger Hub debunking myths around men's mental health. As a guest, in person or online, you will be part of a conversation as we tackle some of the all too common manner myths from my book, Time to Talk, How Men Think About Love, Belonging and Connection, what it really means to be a man in 2021. It's not one to miss, so head to the link in the description to RSVP today or head over to mantalk.live to get your tickets now. That's head over to mantalk.live to get your tickets now. Welcome to Time to Talk. Passing, fetishization, colorism, mixed race identity. These are the topics I have the pleasure of speaking to my friend Natalie Morris about this week on the show. Her book, Mixed Other Explorations of Multiraciality in Modern Britain, came out in April, and we explore what it means to be mixed race in Britain today. The book comes at an essential time, especially in Black History Month, where it can bring up very strong feelings of exclusion for mixed race black people when entering the conversation. And interestingly enough, out in cinemas this week is Passing, the new film written and directed by Rebecca Hall, starring Ruth Negar and Tessa Thompson about African-Americans who had skin color light enough to be perceived as white, which is known as Passing. And it's out in cinemas on October 27th, and will be on Netflix on November the 10th, and is based on the 1929 novel by Nella Larson. Natalie and I have an in-depth conversation about what it means to pass, especially today in the age of Meghan and Harry. We also talk about the identities of mixed-race black people, fetishization from within and without the black community, and what books Natalie wants to share with us this week. 
Natalie and I have worked together as journalists before, and she is Deputy Lifestyle Editor at The Metro, covering race, mental health, women in sport, and women in the workplace. She has a column called Mixed Up on metro.co.uk, and she hails from Manchester and is doing the work to make the newsroom a much more inclusive and diverse place. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at NMOZZNMOZ. I do hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share far and wide. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, Natalie Morris, to Time to Talk. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you so much for having me. So nice to chat to you on this. How's how's everything going for you? Everything is is going okay. Yeah, um, I'm enjoying the sunshine after all of the rain. Um, Work Mm -hmm. is busy, busy, busy. Obviously, the book is Mm -hmm. out in the world now. It's been out for about six weeks. So that has been a total whirlwind. And yeah, just just getting used to this uh, this new space of, of of being an author, I guess, and having that big body of work out in the world and, and you know, reacting to all of that. It's been really positive um, and very exciting. And I'm trying to yeah. sit in that moment and enjoy it and be happy that it's done and not immediately race on to okay what's next as I am want to do as a person so I'm trying to give myself you know, that time <laughs> you know as like you know, it's so weird we debuted in the same yeah. month um it's like um it's like two two rap artists like debuting their album <laughs> <It's exactly laughs> dropping like their single that, yeah we're the same it's basically that yeah <laughs> so let's delve in um I think it'd be remiss of me not to kind of ask you just a bit about where you come from, where that lovely accent comes from, <laughs> and just about your idea of what it was like growing up for you. So yeah. um, talk to me. Well, I'm originally from Manchester, um, which is where this mm. northern accent comes from, even though I've now been in London for nine years. And so my sister would say that I sound like disgustingly Southern at this point, even though I strongly disagree. And she's, yeah, she's always fuming about my, about my London twangs in my accent. Um, but I, I, I still very much see myself as a hardcore Mancunian. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've yep. been in, I've been in London nearly a decade now, which is crazy how, how quick that's gone. Um, and throughout that, pretty much that whole time I've been working in different kind of journalism roles across print and broadcast and digital. I've worked in the ITV newsroom um, doing broadcast news, which was crazy, Um, so intense and manic and very fun um, as well. Um, And I've worked across, yeah, different different magazines and different print newsrooms as well. Um, And I'm currently, yeah, senior lifestyle writer at metro.co.uk and I've been there for almost three years um yeah and I'm, I'm I'm loving it it's 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 great fun I get a lot of autonomy I get to write about the kind of things that I am really passionate about I write a lot about uh racism and uh social justice uh, as well as like women's issues and mental health and well-being as well so it's really really quite a nice kind of broad scope as a journalist as a writer um so that's kind of my day job and then I'm I'm finding my feet in this kind of other world of, of writing longer form and uh yeah dipping my toe into the world of, of books and um yeah trying to trying to continue in that vein so hopefully 
I will get more opportunities to do that going forward because I love it. The process of writing the book was um, was awesome. Very hard, very hard to do alongside a full time job. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but very very fulfilling as well. So to mm-hmm. see that now out in the world is like epic, epic feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, your book mixed other is as you said is around um conversations with people and ideas about you know being mixed Mm -hmm. in the uk whether and that is like the varying census idea of mixed you know when it says mixed and it just says black or white or you know and all these other the varying ideas of what it means to be Mm -hmm. mixed race in the uk now um because invariably people would be assuming that when when they say mixed they assume black white and it's just usually that that's the only idea yeah. of what makes this and um i want to just understand i want to understand a bit more about how you kind of grew up in that space and what that meant for you and your identity um looking out at that so as a as a young woman growing up in manchester mm-hmm. you know and you know the people the black people that i know in manchester have notoriously told me that it's notoriously there's parts of it that are just really intensely black and then it's just not yeah so yeah. Um, what was that like for you yeah um, growing up well i grew up in in really quite white spaces um uh, in kind of south manchester um cheshire area and i went to very white schools um as well and i think that also i think growing up in the 90s um i don't know if this is your experience as well but for me there was very much a this kind of culture of like color blindness was was the thing and that was like seen as a color blindness. Yeah, just in terms of like mm. the way parents um, and teachers and people and grown-ups and authority addressed these things, as in it wasn't addressed, and that was seen as a as a positive. They wanted to kind of create this idea that there was no difference between people, that you know we didn't need to talk about these things, and that was kind of seen as the best mm. way to to tackle it. So we didn't have many conversations about race or racism really in in my household or in school I don't really remember it happening at all in my childhood um, apart from when specific things came up if if I did experience racism at school and I'd speak to either of my parents and um, they were both like incredibly uh, supportive and open and willing to have those discussions but I think on a surface level it wasn't really on anybody's radar to be like, okay, we need to sit down and talk about, talk to me and my sister about, about race, about our racial identity, about where we kind of fit in this space, like what it means to us as a family or to us individually, that wasn't really happening. Um, and, and it didn't really, it didn't really make me feel any kind of way when I was a kid. Like I didn't, I was very privileged to not for it to not really be an issue apart from these odd occasions where mm. I did experience racism and that was obviously <laughs> jarring and difficult and I'd have then have to have these kind of tough conversations about why is this kid calling me this name what does this mean um but as an as a as an overall thing I don't really think I saw myself necessarily as a racialized person until I kind of got to probably my early 20s if I'm being completely honest after university, once I kind of moved to London and kind of started moving in much more diverse circles and diverse spaces, but also then being in the world of work and seeing how being um, a non-white person 
had a direct impact on my life in a way that it hadn't really when I was growing up. Um, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay. So like being non-white, being a black mixed woman has an impact. It changes how people see me, how they view me, how they treat me, the kind of opportunities I have, the kind of doors that are open to me in lots of different ways. And that was something I kind of came to a bit later, I think. Um, and as a result, I've had to kind of retrospectively look back at, at my childhood and, and my younger years and be like, okay, what was that instance about? What, how did race and my racial identity influence these different things that happened? And it's made me kind of reassess certain things and, and certain relationships and, and certain interactions that I had. So that's been a really interesting um, kind of journey. And I think that that's something that's quite specific to being mixed and quite common in the mixed experience uh, if you do grow up in quite white spaces specifically um, you're then having to kind of go back and figure it out for yourself because you don't necessarily have those natural uh, toolkits you don't have those natural kind of um, connection points or people around you who will automatically understand and automatically be giving you those lessons from day one you kind of have to figure it out on your own a bit later that was that was my experience anyway and and a lot of the people I spoke to for the book had had kind of similar things to say about that so I do think it's something that comes up when you're mixed um yeah yeah, yeah. so the it's very interesting what you're saying because um the it's like when you it's like coming home to yourself in a in a, in a really weird yeah. way because of the the kind of the cultures that we live in is an anti-black one mm. it becomes this it becomes this idea of you really trying to reconnect or refine or define yourself in that way mm. and you've you know you said that there were occasions that you experienced racism i don't know if you want to speak on those yeah um, any of those particular examples just so that we can get some wider context as to what you've well been, what you're yeah absolutely i mean it's, it's all the normal stuff like it's this is nothing like groundbreaking like you know just being called the n-word in the playgrounds being called chocolate face like all these things that ki horrible kids say to each other and like that were just like they're just needlessly brutal and and you think about it and you're like where are you learning this like someone at home is teaching these things that's what i always think when it comes from kids i'm like this isn't an innate thing. You don't you don't just know this. You're 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 being taught, actively taught that this is how you treat people of a different race. Um, so yeah, the, it was just the kind of you know the, the, that kind of childish name calling. Then as you get older, it's, it's you know the usual kind of microaggressions that anybody who's who's non-white will will have you know deep uh, understanding of and and complete uh, complete ability to relate to and. You know, even even recently, like on in um, in Paris a couple of summers ago, I was called you know an N word bitch on the street by some guy. And um, yeah, it's you know it's Paris is Paris is crazy for racism. Um, so yeah, for real, for real. Um, so there is there is a lot of um, yeah, it's it's stuff that any any black person, any non-white person will recognize um, and will understand and. Then, but then on the other side of the spectrum, there is the kind of specific hostility you get occasionally as a mixed person. So um, I, I talk about in the book uh, a time when um, when a black guy called me a mongrel on the street um, because 
heat well it's just like a romantic he was trying to like chirp me essentially and i was like couldn't be bothered what? um and then the moment the mo- you know this is this is again another thing of just like women not being able to say no when men are coming onto them um because they get immediately hostile um but the fact that 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 word that specific word was so close to the surface like that was instantly the first thing he said to me um the fact that he very much saw me as mixed and not black and he wanted to make that make it clear that that was a negative thing was a was a very mm. strange and specific form of hostility um so yeah there are, there are many layers to it in different forms of of kind of um racism discrimination that 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 you face when you kind of cross between being seen sometimes as being seen as as a black woman sometimes you're seen very clearly as not a black woman but always you're seen as not white so there's that as well so yeah different different kind of layers to it yeah very interesting when it comes to i've had conversations with a lot of mixed race friends so i have so i do kind of go back and forth in how i kind of um identify them and i know that when it when i naturally do say when they are black when they are mixed race but they have a black parent i automatically go for this is my black friend sort of thing or like you know what i mean like you are black Mm -hmm. and then i've had numerous conversations um even in my household like my family just about Mm. kind of what it looked um you know because you know they're like oh you know my cousins would be like well no uh mixed race people are mixed Mm. race um, and I'm like, but isn't that kind of exclusionary? Mm. Like, so what does that mean? Mm. And they're like, well, no, because that's how, that's what they are. That's how, quote unquote, they identify. Have you spoken to every mixed race person? <laughs> so it becomes this, this big debate within the black yeah, group family. Yeah. So I always wanted to, I, I just wanted to speak to you just about what that means for you. Yeah. Because it must be quite isolating sometimes to, you know, identify with, you know, obviously the color of your skin and you know and within a community and then for the same community to be like well you're black and then you may think you're mixed and there's so many and and people within the mixed community would be like well we're mixed what what do you what what do you say to me oh god it's such a complex i can i can only speak for myself and my own experiences and for you know for anyone i've spoken to for the book so um but Mm -hmm. from my own perspective i think it's it's incredibly complex it's something that's that's incredibly context dependent um, and changes depending on who is seeing you, where you are, where where you are in the country, where you are in the world, how old you are, who's around you. There's all these different elements that play into it. Um, so mm-hmm. there isn't, I find that often isn't a kind of a definition of how you can identify when you're mixed or you have mixed heritage. And I think that's very clear in the kind of the, the the wide variety of language that is used um, that by people who are mixed it's all these different different words different terms different phrases um, and and I talk about that very early on in the book about how I um, I refer to myself as mixed uh, uh, as a black mixed woman uh, but there are people mm-hmm. who would who would say that you know dual heritage biracial uh, multi heritage there are all these different terms that people use and language is obviously so important when we're talking about these kind of things it's not a superficial thing at all um, but it is always evolving as well it's something that changes over time and I think that's a really good thing um, so I think when it comes to identity um, and how we're defining ourselves I think it's I think the key thing is to is to empower mixed people to be able to 
define themselves how they want to like it's up to them really to to define their own experiences because only they know what their specific experience is no matter how they look no matter how it looks externally they know how they feel in terms of the different communities that they're involved with the different elements of their family heritage they know how much affinity they feel they know how much influence each element of their heritage has had on who they are um and i find that what can happen when you're mixed is that power to do that is so frequently taken away from you and more often than not as a mixed person you're told by other people what you are and what you are not in no uncertain terms over and over again um, and that's incredibly disempowering and that i think is what makes what can make being mixed feel isolating um, there's nothing kind of inherent about being mixed that means you're like confused or you don't know who you are or you don't belong somewhere it's how other people respond to you and the way that they disempower you by telling you what your label is or what your label isn't um so there's so many people i spoke to in the book who have said that their their idea of who they are has changed over time depending on what people have told them um for example, mm. Luke in the book, he's um, mixed with black and, and white heritage, and he spent a long time mm. as a teenager being really adamant that he he was a black man and he wanted to identify as that, and he really leaned into that and um, was really trying to kind of almost overcompensate to, to kind of prove a point and be like, no, this is who I am. And then he got to university and he was told uh, by some black friends that you don't get to call yourself that because your experience isn't the same as ours. Um, and he took that on board and he took some of that um, on and thought about it and thought on it and was like, Do you know what, that's true. I have a different experience. I don't ha I don't have the same lived experience as people who don't have white heritage. And so now he identifies as mixed rather than black. So you can see I've seen how it's so different for different people. Um, yeah, it's a really complicated one for me personally. I, I see myself as as mixed um but as i would say i'm a black mixed woman and i don't find that a, mm -hmm. um i think that's an accurate way to describe yeah exactly you explain that very well and very clearly as well because i think that that makes the most mm. sense um and, and it's just even looking back on it just even when i was at school um i, I remember year nine a whole group of black boys like black, black boys yeah. were sent to um this kind of black, you know how they're always doing these things for black mm. boys to go and do some stuff to inspire yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. There's always somebody there to inspire them to be better. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so, so we, got, we got sent and my friend didn't get picked and he's mixed race. Okay. And I was just like, why, so why aren't you coming? And he's like, I'm not black at <laughs> clearly. And I was like, okay. Mm. Like, and then I was just like, you know what? That's actually, I just put it in the back of my mind. And I started kind of like searching through those memories yeah. you know, as you age and kind of just sit here in conversations and stuff. And I was just like, actually, that must've been really tough for him mm. because, you know, a large, large amount of his friends are black yeah. and he identifies as a black person, yet he is not, he's excluded from a yeah. lot of conversations yeah. as well. And excluded from a lot of experiences too. It's, I think it's really jarring to, to kind of, feel a certain way about yourself and then not have that reflected in how other people see you. And I think that can be like, you know, really destabilizing um, for your sense of identity and for your sense of self. Um, and again, it comes back to that empowerment and just feeling like, oh, wait, so I don't get to decide where I fit. That that 
that decision seems to be in the hands of other people. Um, and that's, I think, what's been really nice about, about the book and about speaking to so many mixed people is kind of realizing that there's this kind of longing and for, for that connection with other people who kind of exist in these liminal in-between spaces. Um, and that's been really nice kind of bringing those together and, and finding that kind of community, even though obviously like being mixed is, is so varied. It's such a widely like heterogeneous experience. Like it's hugely, hugely different. But I think at the heart of it, there are things that can tie our experiences together. And it has been quite powerful to, to find those connections and to think, Do you know what, there is a kind of community here. And the amount of messages I've had from people since the book has been out saying, you know, this book has made me feel seen and made me feel like I'm not on my own with these thoughts. I think that's what, that's what's important in finding those connections. Yeah. So your book goes through several give several chapters um based around the different kind of areas that you know of life but you know specifically from a mixed race lens um and one of the things i found really interesting was the the idea around fetishization itself um and that kind of that stems back to as far as slavery um i would imagine even probably uh, that's as far as i would probably place it but um, what do you have to say to fetishization and um, and and what that and what that means and kind of what 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 did you pick up and learn about that um, through writing the book and your obviously your own experiences as well? Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it's definitely seems to be a kind of big part of 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 the mixed experience, particularly as women. I do think it's a it's a gendered thing, um, and from the research I've done and the kind of studies that I looked at. It definitely seems to be kind of a, I don't know, a female, uh, a female experience um, in a, in a sense, in terms of the way we're presented in the media and um, in in films and in literature and the kind of beauty standards that exist. And I think what's been interesting for me in looking at that fetishization and the way the way mixed people, mixed women who fit a certain specific blueprint of mixedness are kind of pedestalized and put on this kind of um, yeah pedestal of being seen as the kind of more beautiful uh, like thing that you're kind of aspiring to for, for if you have certain features and you're ticking those boxes. And it's, it's a really strange uh, kind of phenomenon really because I've seen it shift over the course of, of my lifetime um, because when I was younger, um, growing up, there was nothing uh, like covetable about looking like I did. Like the features that I had weren't kind of being replicated in magazines or on TV or people weren't saying, oh, I wish I had hair like yours. You know, quite the opposite, in fact. Like I was desperate to uh, have that swishy, swishy ponytail like um, like all my white friends. And because that's who I saw on TV, that's who, that's what was beautiful um, at that time in the in the 90s and the, the early noughties. And then as I grow older, you start to see that shift. And all of a sudden, there's loads of women who look like, you know, Georgia Smith on the on the billboards and on the adverts and on the JD sports adverts. And, and they're kind of being held up as the as the epitome of of beauty and there's this kind of um it's a it's a aspiration towards a kind of uh racial ambiguity 
um, this kind of, you don't really know where somebody's from, you can't really tell, but there's a, there's a kind of drop of exoticism in there that they can, a bit of, a bit of spice that people like without it being too far in any direction that's going to make it problematic or too worrying. Um, and that comes with that kind of palatability and that proximity to whiteness that you have if you're a mixed person with white heritage. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting place to sit because it's often posited as progress and something good. And in a way, even people who are aware of it as, as fetishization are still like, yeah, but is it a stepping stone in the right direction? Does it start with kind of light brown people and then soon we're going to, you know, widen out that acceptance? And I just don't think that's how it's, that's what's happening here. I don't think this is like a, uh, you know, a linear progression to opening up to wider diversity. I think it's a very specific kind of mm. racial ambiguity that is being um, um, fetishized and uh, and lauded. And I, it's not necessarily a gateway into opening up for, for wider channels of diversity. It's just people capitalizing on this one specific look. Um, yeah. yeah, which is why I think that there's so many kind of influencers and um social media stars and kardashians etc are cherry you know essentially black fishing and or mixed fishing and and picking cherry picking those elements of of blackness or mixed features that that suit their brand it's trying to be racially ambiguous yeah. <laughs> just, you know yeah, and just you know you want all you want you want all of the the fun but none of the struggle exactly. so exactly it's, um, that. It, 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 it's all of that but it's actually in, in the book you said you said about um when it comes to fetishization um it can only go one way mm. it's the powerful exerting the power over the the powerless i would say yeah. in that specific context so it can never work the other way around and um it's a power dynamic like you can't it's it's the same uh in terms of like racism and how that works in terms of you know, mm. this is this is people who who these are the people who are deciding what's beautiful. These are the people who are deciding who gets to be acceptable in the face of wider society, and they're always at the top. Um, so you know, a very you know white people are the kind of gatekeepers of what is deemed beautiful, what is deemed acceptable, what is deemed attractive. Um, and it, and it can't be flipped the other way. So and 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 that's why I think it's so problematic because it's so tenuous. It's so, you know, the fact that mm. when when because they, so whoever the powers that be have decided that looking mixed for this for this this ten year period or this five year period is something that's good, that can very easily switch again. This isn't like you know mm. a haircut. This isn't like a trend. Like oh, everyone loves the the Rachel haircut from Friends. Betraying betraying my age there. This isn't a haircut. This is. This is a racial identity, and you and when someone decides mm. that looking like a certain racial identity is trendy for a time, that's really mm. damaging um, for the people who don't get to pick and choose when they look like that and when they don't. So, what do you say about intra-racial colorism and prejudices and those sorts of things? Because you know there are like there are black people mm -hmm. who they will date they will actively go and seek out people who are of lighter yeah. skin or of um different kind of racial heritage so whether that be um east asian or southeast asian yeah. um just kind of or south asian just to kind of you know 
change the the cultural the you know the cultural genetic yeah. um system just so that children can a quote unquote look better yeah. have better hair have, you know and, and and all of that stuff um and i i look at that and i think to myself you know there's there's so much there that we haven't really kind of unpacked as a community mm. you know we 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 have the colorism conversation we know that there are there are texts and there are people that have like been vocal about this stuff for generations but i think for today this is why your book is so important but i think like for today having these conversations is it, it, it's challenging mm. but how do you have those conversations within your family especially specifically within your black family yeah. um about where you sit as a mixed person with lighter skin than say you know other black people yeah it's difficult. Politically. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. And I think it's a, that's a really interesting point you make about um, about colorism in terms of dating and intraracial colorism. And I think that's a really big issue. Um, something that I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily know enough about to speak on in terms of how much that is actually still happening, how much how much work has been done on that in 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 black communities. Um, in terms of my experience um, with navigating those spaces in my own family and in wider communities as a light-skinned mixed woman is, I think it's it's very crucial to be able to acknowledge the reality of your position. And I think the problem when we come when we come to conversations with with colorism and privilege, um, is so, and how it so frequently becomes defensive and accusatory and very difficult to talk about. And I think that ultimately comes down to a problem that is a human failing, I think we all have, of not wanting to acknowledge privilege and not wanting to acknowledge that we've had a leg up in any way or that we had certain doors left open for us. But I think that's a, that's a human thing, or at least a, a Western cultural human thing. And that's something we are constantly um, pointing at uh, the white community to do better. And we say we have to, you know, you have to talk about white privilege um, or, you know, economic privilege as well as something that I think we've got a lot better at, at discussing. And I think that mm -hmm. the next step is that we have to look within within racialized communities at the different levels of privilege. Um, and that is on, on mixed people and on lighter skinned people to acknowledge that colorism is real and that we benefit from it. And I think it's very difficult for some people to do that because it happens alongside also experiencing racism and discrimination and microaggressions. So it's even harder to acknowledge privilege when you also experience some of the other stuff as well. Um, and also because I find that that privilege, um, in my experience, and in a lot of the, um, in the words of a lot of the people I spoke to for the book, that privilege is very uh, tenuous, again, and often dependent on other people and who is seeing you. So, mm -hmm. as a as a light skinned person or as a as a mixed uh, a mixed person, you don't get to walk into a room and, and say, right today I'm going to use my my light skin privilege. It it very much depends on where you are and who's seeing you. Again, like I said before, about sometimes I've seen 
just as a non-white person or, or as a black person and sometimes I'm seen as someone who has privilege who has lighter skin who is closer to whiteness mm -hmm. and therefore has more mm -hmm. opportunities but I don't get to decide when I use that um so again that that makes it hard to to hold your hands up and be like I do have privilege because I think so many people feel like well how much of a privilege is it if you don't get to wield it to when it like at your whim like it this is up to mm. and again that it's always a sliding scale um with whiteness at the top so i think for anyone who's underneath that it's it's very hard to to acknowledge that you are benefiting from that system um mm -hmm. so but i think that's where we need to get to and that's how we're going to improve these conversations um mm. is by just that honesty um and the fact that it, just understanding that that duality can be a thing that you can experience racism but that that mm. and that you can also have privilege at the same time simultaneously yeah. these two things can happen and one doesn't negate the other mm. um yeah. and i think we do have the scope for that for those conversations um and we, we have the scope to talk about the mixed experience without it kind of crumbling into this um like competition about whether it's it's harder or less hard it's just a different experience and i think we're able to to talk about all of those experiences yeah yeah the one thing tony morrison taught me before she passed mm. when she sat with me in her books <laughs> she never met me she never knew i existed. but um <laughs> but what she did have was this conversation around passing and I remember reading it in Song of Solomon mm. um, and also in um, The Bluest Eye about this idea of passing mm. and what that means. So I've got two points I want to ask you on. Um, the first one is about navigating the world of work as a mixed race woman. Mm. Um, what does that look like for you? And you know, because you've written loads of things around, you know, I think you wrote a recent piece for the Metro about, um, you know, a percentage of people in the workplace still don't like to use the word black. Yeah. Um, and, and I was like, ha! <laughs> okay, Natalie is turning tables over <laughs> and throwing that stuff in, in there. But like, um, so that's one mm. thing. But um, and what that, what that feels like for you, but also just kind of like navigating that as somebody who is up against somebody who is darker skinned in that space, how do you kind of challenge, how do you kind of navigate through a world such as journalism, which is notoriously very white and middle class, um, you know, to get to get through what you've done? What has that experience been like for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, you know, journalism is 94% white. Uh, the newsrooms I've worked in are, have been overwhelmingly white. And you can't, you can't help but feel that, like you feel it. And this is, and I have so much privilege in that I have white heritage, I have white family, I grew up in white spaces. Um, so I have an inherent kind of advantage in that I have more understanding of how to navigate those spaces and kind of fitting in, in, in those spaces is much easier for me um, than it would be for for certain other people um, who are darker skin, for example, or who are monoracial. Um, and I still feel it. I still feel like 
okay, I can feel this difference. Um, and particularly, you know, writing about things that I write about, like I'm writing about um, about racism, and you come up against opposition um, at different at different points from different places of authority. You come up against people who don't share your worldview, who don't understand where you're coming from, who think that you're this perpetually angry um, woman with a chip on their shoulder who's just trying to be difficult for the sake of it, who don't, who, who just don't get where you're coming from with these these kind of topics. So it's definitely difficult. Um, at the same time, there's also this kind of uh, contention in in being that kind of more palatable face when you are light skinned and you are mixed. And um, I have an acute awareness of this. And there's been ex- instances where I've been kind of uh, rolled out for different kind of talks or like you said about about those uh about black boys being taken to places for inspirational talks i've given some of those talks at newsrooms i've been like wheeled out to chat to some kids from from some college in lewisham and i'm like hi boys like come work here um and there's this like instant contention with that because um obviously i want to encourage people to do that um and there's a part of me that's like yeah i'll be the face like yeah put me on your poster put me in your prospectus like yeah let's show them like but i also feel like my my face is like like spinning a lie from from the outset because i am not the reality of what any of these people will see if they do actually come in into the newsroom um there'll be me and there'll be three other people who maybe look like them um and that's it and I feel like it's um, there's a falsity in that, and in me coming out and, and giving the spiel about yeah, come and come and work in journalism, um, because the reality is that it's going to be really difficult. One for them to even get in that room, and two for them to thrive in those spaces. So I, I'm constantly battling with this this internal dilemma of do I push for this? Do I do I keep championing and trying to get more people in at a junior level when I have first-hand experience of what that's like and how difficult it is mm. and, and see how much non-white talent the industry is hemorrhaging because there's a kind of glass ceiling you get to, um, you get to kind of middle management, you get to kind of mid-senior level and there's nowhere else for you to go because you're not being promoted any higher than that. Um, so it's very, it's very hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very hard because you want to be you want to be the face. You want to encourage people, but you don't want to bullshit them. You don't want to be like <laughs> lying to their faces, like. Ugh. And you know, and, and this is and this is why even like, and this is just like a slight tangent into journalism, which is a bit. I just didn't want to be that person yeah. that was doing that. At one point, at one point, I did want to be like, mm. all right, yeah, let's let me talk to black guys and get them into the place and da, 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 da. but then also if i'm not inherently happy in this place yeah. why am i going to go and stand there and try and bring people in yeah and i just felt like that wasn't it was kind of a bit it was harder for me it was hard to be able to do that because i wasn't living authentically in that space yeah. and i'd only be doing it for a, an idea of myself and i just didn't really and i didn't want to have to do that mm. um but i can understand where you're coming from i term completely empathize it's so challenging um, especially in an, in a lot of these industries mm-hmm. that are ninety plus percent white, mm. and you just have to, th- and then and then there will be a report that comes out and they say there's no institutional racism. <laughs> You're just like, well, the 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 newsrooms, the boardrooms, the offices, the anywhere in a lot of these industries are not diverse. Yeah. So how are we? How are we actually? What are we actually saying? Mm. 
um, to people? What, what are we what are we doing um, if we're just kind of gaslight them and tell them <laughs> that it's just not it's just not an experience that happens in the UK? And I just find that I find that absolutely strange. Yeah. Um, the second thing I did want to ask a bit though is about whether you would marry into the royal family. <laughs> You had a chance, you know. Would you? Would, 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 would that be? And, and I'm not blaming anybody, you know. But if you had the opportunity, <laughs> would you have? Would you have ventured down that road? <laughs> I mean, that is a that is a strong a strong no from me. Like absolutely not. And I and I still I cannot like Harry must be have some seriously good chat because I don't understand why Meghan would give up her sweet life um for this absolute mess that she's walked into um like she must be deeply in love with this prince like yes. deeply deeply and truly um and i love that for her and i'm you know the uh, they must they must have something magic going on because why on earth would you do this and i and i this is how i felt from the very beginning and i think a lot of people did and particularly at the, when she was, you know, everyone was buzzing about how we're going to have a going to have a black princess and it's going to do this and do this. And it shows how amazing we are and how liberal we are. And I was like, oh, no, this is going to be awful for everyone involved. Like, <laughs> what, what is that? Uh, what is that TikTok song? Like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I get you. And I, I saw it and I was just like, because I'm. I'm deeply optimistic. I'm a very optimistic person <laughs> until proven otherwise. Um, and I was like, oh my God, like, so they're fully accepting a mixed race, a black mixed woman yeah. into the space. They had the blackest wedding. Mm -hmm. It was the sunniest day. Yeah. You know, she's popular. Um, Harry's just happy. He's <laughs> like, from ear to ear. Like, what a wonderful day for post-racial <laughs> I was swiftly thrown off, thrown out of that room, um, and I just, and it just, and it just kind of makes me, um, it just, it's just that, it's just that added question to passing and what that means when you get to the space. Because if you can also look at it from a perspective of Megan's gone into that space and disrupted it, mm. and she's she was able to get to that place to disrupt it from that point mm. and. He would never have been able to do that had she been a dark skinned black yeah. woman. And I feel, because it probably would not have gotten further mm -hmm. than the dinner that they were at. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Definitely. it probably would not have happened. Because um, I always go back to um, uh, the ma the Marchioness of Bath, I think her name, I think it mm -hmm. is. I forgot what her full name is. But she's a Nigerian, she's a mixed woman. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I will send you. I don't know if you know who this person is, but I'm going to send you um, stuff after because I've completely forgotten. I'm blind. <laughs> but um, she's a mixed race woman okay. and she, um, you know, her dad is a Nigerian oil baron. Her mum is an English woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's wealthy, like she's a wealthy mixed race woman. Yeah. And she married, in, she married into um, this elite family um, of, you know, aristocrats mm -hmm. and... They were, already, they were they were saying oh you know it's fun for a while they the family was saying it's fun for a while and all this stuff and you know but you're going to dilute the blood and you know the blood is the blood is this the blood oh is that they were like you're it's a stain on the family's history and all this different stuff uh to the point where certain family members his mom and dad included did not attend the wedding and all of that stuff so i look at you know i just want to know what you think about passing and we can head off head off down the merry road into rounding off this conversation. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I, I think you make a really valid point about Megan disrupting. 
um, in that space. And I hadn't actually really thought about it like that in terms of, you know, the fact that she's been able to to get into that position to to have such an impact in terms of the conversations that ha that are now being had, the way that people have kind of shifted um, their opinions about the royal family. I don't. I mean, I don't know. It's very. We'll have to. I think it's still to be seen how much of an impact um, any of this, any of this Harry and Meghan drama will have long term in terms of the institution and and how people view the monarchy. Um, but you know, at least these conversations are being had, and there there is some, at least some thoughtful conversation and discussion being had about it, which is a positive. And for her to be able to to get herself into that position to have these conversations is a powerful thing. Um, and I think that's another thing that is almost a responsibility of of people who who do have that privilege. Um, and part of the reason I, I relate it to my own experience within newsrooms and within journalism and the kind of stories that I'm trying to tell and the kind of work that I'm producing and I'm, I'm you know I'm acutely aware that there's there's an element of that that comes down to my privilege enabling me to do that and to, to be in those spaces and to have the autonomy and um, the the position of seniority that I do in order to get those messages out there and I think that's why I'm compelled to keep going with it and not not just drop away and be like you know what it's too hard it's too much responsibility because because mm. i want to and and i think it's i've got to use this the privilege to be in this space for something for something good so i think that's an interesting parallel um between myself and megan probably the only parallel um, uh, but yeah and, and also like but passing is is something that's really fascinating and something i i wanted to to look at deeper in the book it's something I don't have direct experience of I don't pass as white um I'm very clearly not white from, from looking at me but there's a lot of mixed people who do and I think what's interesting is how it how the the connotations of, of what that means has changed over time and um you know if you look back at for example Nella Larson's book Passing and, and the way it's historically spoken about um in like 20th century literature and films uh, it's always this kind of deception, um, this inherent kind of mm. sneaky, devious thing that that mixed people are, are trying to wheedle their way into white society and cast off yeah. their blackness and distance themselves from blackness. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a denial of one. A denial, exactly. Accepted in another. Exactly, and they're trying to give themselves a better life, abandon their family. They don't care. They get to be white now. Brilliant. Um, and that's always how it was presented. And I think there are definite hangovers from the, those early 20th century narratives in the way people think about mixed people, particularly those with lighter skin and those who pass. Um, because I think that that's sometimes where that kind of a, a slight inherent suspicion or mistrust comes into play, where there's this assumption that mixed people are taking up space where they don't belong, or that they're trying to kind of uh, insert themselves into something that they're not and I think that's a hangover from this idea of passing and, and what that meant historically um, but I think from the people I've spoken to today who who pass um, as white it's very much kind of the opposite in the sense that they're now that they're very often forced to try to reclaim their minority heritage and, and kind of overcompensate and prove that they belong in those other spaces um, so they're less trying to hide themselves as white and more trying to be, be own their full heritage 
um, and being, you know, frequently denied that and being told, no, you don't get to because you pass as white. Um, so it seems it's not something I have direct experience of, but from the interviews I did, it's a really interesting place to be um, and something that's not spoken about very often in terms of um, the conversation conversations we have about race. Um, so, yeah, I think hopefully we'll we'll be able to have basically just more space and understanding for people who are who have mixed heritage who don't hit that kind of perfectly in the middle box that everybody seems to be talking about when they talk about mixed if you don't look like Meghan Markle you kind of get discounted from the mixed conversation as it were um mm. so I think it's really important to talk to people who are mixed who pass as white for example and to talk to people who are mixed who don't have white heritage people who are mixed with two different minority heritages um yeah. yeah, that's that's what I would say about in terms of passing. Okay, amazing, amazing. Um, well, thank you for joining me today. That was an amazing conversation. I loved it. Thank you for having me. And um, you no know, worries. I just want before you go, two books that you would want to recommend to people. Yes. Okay. Um, um they have to be fiction because that's my joy in life. So I would recommend. <laughs> Uh, on Earth, We Are Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vung. I think, I'm not sure if I'm saying his second name correctly. I would I would recommend that because it it is stunning. Like, it was at a point where I would be reading it. I was, I was underlining lines. I was like, I was in the bath. I got out of the bath, go find my boyfriend so I could like read him a specific sentence. And he'd be like, go away. Like the floor's wet. What are you doing? But I was like, you have to listen to the sentence. But it was very, anyway, I had a very visceral, yeah. intense reaction to this book. It was just, it was beautiful. And it's, it's, I'm yeah. just in awe of his writing and it's how I want to write. So yeah, I hugely admire that. Um, second book is 26A by Diana Evans, um, who is a, a mixed, uh, mixed writer. And she, she wrote um, a book that I think was probably more successful recently um called ordinary people which i also love yeah but 26a was before that um and i feel like not as many people have read it and it i loved it i loved it so much it's one of the best books i read last year um it's centered around these uh these two twin girls um and their experiences both in in london uh, i think like kilburn i think northwest london and um in i think nigeria they go and live so it's kind of across the two spanning the two um two different places that they lived and covers their entire lives and it's very beautiful um lovely depiction of sisterhood and twinship which is something i'm very interested in so yeah would hugely recommend okay. that it's gorgeous amazing amazing well thank you so much for joining me natalie today um where can people find you if they want to get in touch or want to know more about what you do? Where do you sit uh, on the internet? <laughs> I sit in many corners of the internet. Um, no, so you can you can find my writing on uh, metro.co.uk on the lifestyle page, um, but I'm also on Twitter at nmoz and same handle on Instagram. But yeah, I'm I'm more prolific on Twitter, I guess. So probably go there. Yeah. <laughs> 